Thank you, brother, very, very much. All right, let's open our Bibles now, if you would, please, to Philippians chapter 1. I may need to give you a little bit of explanation as to the title of the sermon tonight. Most of you probably recognize that this title comes from another passage of Scripture that Paul wrote, but it's not in the book of Philippians. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul wrote, But we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. And that is a verse that could very well have been inserted into Philippians because that is really part of the theme of the Philippian letter. And any time that Paul sat down to write, he surely could have said, Everywhere I go, everywhere I turn, there are troubles all about me. And if you live like that every single day of your life, if you live that way all of the time, you'd have to have something to hold on to to maintain your sanity. And Paul had something to hold on to, and what he held on to was his faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what enabled him to look beyond the current troubles that he had. And he was able to say in verse number 12 of this same chapter, whatever happens to me is for the furtherance of the gospel. So he knew that God had begun a good work in him and God would complete that work. And though he didn't always understand how God was going to do it and he didn't understand why God did the things that he did, yet he knew that God someday was going to deliver him from all of this. So we needn't really look to any other key for trying to understand the book of Philippians and how that Paul could write in such troubled times and be able to write without distress. And that's because he believed all things were in the hands of God. So tonight we're going to read from this first chapter again. If you'd stand with me, we're looking at verses 19 and 20 this evening. First Philippians, or Philippians rather, uh, verses 19 and 20, chapter 1. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Heavenly Father, we just ask you that you would speak to us through your word tonight. And Lord, uh, as we talk about the Apostle Paul and things that he went through, how he was able to, to overcome all the distress and problems of his life, help us, Lord, to see the same things that he saw. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let me just briefly catch up with you for just a moment here because uh, it's been a little while since we've been in the Philippian study. But Paul wrote this letter as a, as a prisoner in Philippi. He wasn't in a dungeon or normally what we think of prison. Uh, rather, he, he was under house arrest, we might call it. But nevertheless, Paul wasn't free. And so he couldn't go out and do the things that we normally think that missionaries would do. He couldn't go out and just witness to people freely and then take the converts that he preached to and, and organize them into a church. And so we might ask the question, why did Paul have to go through these things that he went through? Wouldn't it have been better if Paul had been free. I mean, wouldn't it serve the cause of Christ and, and the cause of being a missionary in a much greater way if Paul was not in prison but able to go about doing what missionaries normally do? But our perspective of things is different. We don't see things the way that God sees them, and, and often we think that God's not doing the right thing, and we don't understand why God does things the way that he does. And so uh, that leads people a lot of times to second-guessing God. 
God, why do you do this? Or there's a better way that it can be done. Why don't you do it that way? Well, second-guessing is always harmful for a Christian. Second-guessing leads to disgruntled people. Moses found that out when he was in the wilderness for 40 years with the children of Israel. They'd just been delivered from bondage, and they were on their way to the promised land, but they weren't going the way that God uh, uh, intended in the first place for them to go. It should have been a short journey, but through disobedience, uh, they weren't able to go into the promised land as soon as they thought. And so they became very disgruntled, and they, they second-guessed God all the time about the things that God was doing. Well, that always leads to problems. Paul was not a second-guesser. He had some expectations from God. He knew that God was going to do some things, but he didn't quite know how God was going to work them out. But whatever way that God decided to do it, that was all right with him. Uh, God's method of getting Paul to Rome and doing ministry in Rome was not really what Paul wanted, I don't think. Not really what he was expecting to happen. But he knew that God was behind it all. And so he just trusted God for that. Because God always proves his wisdom. There'll never be a time when God does something that some way, somehow, we're not going to find out that God was absolutely wise in the way that he did it. And certainly that's true with Paul because there were people that were reached with the gospel who couldn't have been reached in any other way except that Paul was a prisoner. There are three important words in the beginning of verse number 19 that express Paul's confidence. He says, for I know... And that's the basis of his contentment. It's what he already knew about God. He knew that he was saved. He knew that God had saved that unworthy soul. He knew that God was taking care of him. He knew that his commitment with God was sure. And so whatever God decided to do, God's in control. And however God works it out, he knew that that would be best. And so that was sufficient to keep him from being distressed in the midst of all the troubles. There are a couple of things I want to talk to you about tonight. We're going to talk about one thing from verse 19 and then uh, another thought from verse number 20. So first of all tonight, our first thought in verse 19 is the deliverance that Paul expected. He says in verse number 19, For I know that this shall turn unto my salvation through your prayer. There are differences of opinion about what Paul means by salvation in that verse. But we know that Paul's not talking about soul salvation. He wouldn't be speaking of that because there aren't any externals that could affect Paul's soul salvation. That was already settled. I mean, when he was on the road to Damascus, uh, Jesus arrested him there, you might say. He stopped him right there. He called him as a preacher of the gospel. He saved his soul. And so there was nothing that Paul would do or anyone else would do that would change the fact of Paul's soul salvation. Nothing he could do, nothing they could do could alter that fact. So salvation in this verse is not referring to soul salvation. In just a moment, we're going to see how soul salvation figures into this verse, but that's not what he means. The controversy centers on, does he mean that he's going to be saved from prison? Is that that what he means? Will he be released? Does he mean that he's going to escape death? Is he talking about that salvation? So what does he mean by it? Well, there's nothing in the text and nothing in the, in the rest of this, uh, the verses that, that we read here that indicate that Paul had any word from God at all that he was going to be released from prison. Probably he prayed for it, just as we would pray for it, but he, he wasn't, uh, didn't have any word from God that he should expect that he would be released from prison. And it doesn't look like he's speaking here about being saved from death. In the last part of verse 20, he he indicates that life and death aren't important to the ultimate cause of Christ. So what does he mean here by salvation? 
Let me give you three suggestions that we can draw from Paul's statement in verse 19. First of all, deliverance for self. Salvation in the verse is not soul salvation. We've already determined that. The word here, salvation, actually means deliverance. And so he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Not that it would be deliverance from prison, because he might expect that, but he wasn't sure that would happen. He means that whatever happens to him, he knows that one day God is going to deliver him out of all troubles. God's going to take care of all of that, whether it's the the physical persecutions that he was going through, or whether it was physical ailments that he might have. And you remember in 2 Corinthians, Paul talked about the thorn in the flesh. He didn't know when to expect it, didn't know when it would happen, but one day God was going to deliver him from it all. Now it's important for us to understand that what happened to Paul is not punishment. A lot of times when things go wrong in our lives, someone may point their finger at us and say, well, that's the punishment of God. You're going through that because of some sin that's in your life. Well, it may not be sin that's in your life. It may not be punishment from God. It may be that God is just honing you. It may be that God's adjusting you. Maybe that God's trying to to teach you something. And and really, I think really most of the time, he's trying to teach us dependence. So that we don't come to the place that our satisfaction, our, our happiness is contingent upon what goes on around us. Now, if there's anything that Christians today need to learn from God's word, I mean, they really need to understand this teaching that outward circumstances should not control the happiness of a Christian. Our hope is stayed in the Lord. And so whatever goes wrong in our lives, whether it's jobs, uh, finances, whether it's, whether it's uh, illnesses, whatever happens in our lives, we can't let those kinds of things control us. But many times we do because we, we just become materialistic. We have uh, a sense of entitlement that, that Brian preached about a few weeks ago. People just think that, well, I don't deserve this. I shouldn't be going through it. But we ought to expect that God will deliver us from it all. It's it's just a question of timing. It's a question of God's timing. There's no doubt that it's going to happen. God will deliver us from all of it. And that's the very thing that kept Paul going. In Job's affliction, what he could have done, he could have just decided, well, uh, he could could have been broken down and just accepted the evil counsel of those supposed friends and said, well, maybe it is because of sin in my life. Maybe I have done something wrong, and that's why God's punishing me. Well, Job knew that that wasn't the reason. They said, Job, this doesn't happen to godly people. Uh, Righteous people don't go through problems like this. And so they kept telling him over and over, this is sin in your life. But Job knew better than that. He knew that it wasn't sin, and he did expect that God would deliver him. Listen to what he says in Job 13. Wherefore do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in mine hand? Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I will maintain mine own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation. And Job's meaning of salvation there is exactly the same meaning that Paul has. He means he will be my deliverance. God will take all of it away when God sees fit to do it. I want you to notice the end of, of the first phrase in Philippians 1.19. He says that his deliverance would come through your prayer. We teach and we absolutely do believe that God has a plan and a purpose for his people. We absolutely do believe that the purposes of God, the plans of God, will not be thwarted. God's plans are going to come about. 
Well, we wonder then, and some people ask the question, well, if that's so, why do we pray? I mean, why do we bother to pray? Because the outcome's already been determined. Why do we pray? Well, there's no doubt that, that Paul believed that the outcome was already determined. He believed that because that's why he writes Philippians 1 verse 6. He said, God who started the work is going to finish the work. And he says in verse number 12, these things that have happened to me have fallen out under the furtherance of the gospel. So he knows that God has the, the outcome in his hand. So why then does he say, I will be delivered through your prayers? Are prayers actually going to change anything? Well, I'll tell you up front, I don't know the answers to all of that. But I do know this, God commands prayer. And I do know that God works through means. God could save you by zapping you with salvation. And that would be the end of it. I mean, that's that's all he needs to do. But God didn't do it that way. Instead, he used means. If you read Romans chapter 10, you know, Paul talks there in the 13th verse where he says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. An absolutely true statement. But then he follows up, verse number 13, with what? All the means, the preaching of the gospel, and all the things that take place in order for a person to call upon the name of the Lord. So God uses means, and he does the same thing with prayer. God's purposes are often carried out through prayer. Prayer is the means. So if you look at this, the the reason why he says that he'll be delivered by their prayers because he believed that's God's method. God's going to work it out through the prayers of God's people. And so he believed then that the prayers of the people are strong enough to hold back the might of the entire Roman Empire. Rome had no power to stop him, and they had no power to help him or to promote him unless God would see fit that that's what he wanted done. So if God answers the prayer of God's people, what will Rome do about it? I want you to turn your Bibles. Keep, keep your finger there in, first, in uh, Philippians, rather. and Let's turn to Acts chapter 12 for just a minute. You may remember the story here. I guess we're all familiar with it. When Peter was in prison, and the church met together to pray for Peter while he was in prison. This is in Acts chapter 12, and this shows us how much power Rome has against prayer. In Acts 12, beginning in verse number 5, it says, Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church, uh, church unto God for him. And when Herod, that's the representative of Rome, and when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. And he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, and bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and wist not that it was true which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. When they were past the first and second ward, they came into an iron gate that leadeth into the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. Now there we see how that God carries out his work through prayer. Could God have delivered Peter without the church praying for him? Certainly he could have. God could do that if he wants. But God used the prayers of the people as the means. Can God perform every single prayer request that's on our prayer page? God can do it. 
But I wouldn't advise you to stop praying because that's the means that God will use to make these things come about. And so when God moves, often the vehicle that he's riding in is prayer. Prayer is the means that God uses to bring about his will. So Paul knew sooner or later he's going to be delivered from it. And so he spoke about self-deliverance. But I think he's also talking about another type of deliverance. There's also deliverance for souls. What was going on with Paul right then, that was going to work out some way for more souls to be saved. Now let's go back up there to verse number 12 one more time in Philippians 1. He says, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. We know what the gospel is, don't we? It's the power of God unto salvation. It's the power that delivers men out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light. Now, I don't think that we can forget the context of why Paul is saying this and the main objective when he says, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. What happens in this life, for him, he says, it's troublesome. It may be life or death, but whatever it is, it's going to work out for souls. God's in control. Now, is there anyone here who's going to argue that because Paul was martyred, fewer souls were saved? Are we going to argue that because Paul was in prison, that some missed out on salvation. I mean, somebody didn't get saved because Paul was in prison. Should we think that if Paul had lived longer and if Paul was out of prison that there are souls that wouldn't have gone to hell if that were true? You know, the way that a lot of preachers preach in our Baptist churches, that's exactly what they think. That somehow nobody got to heaven because of this. Well, never think that if not for this or if not for that, some, of, some person would be saved. Circumstances do not determine salvation. Circumstances are, can be facilitators of salvation, but they don't determine salvation. Now, there are some preachers that like to lay a guilt trip on people, and they'll say, if you don't get out there, and if you don't knock on doors every single day, it's your fault if people die and go to hell. Well, if that's true, then God defeated his purpose by putting Paul in prison, didn't he? I mean, that would have been against the very thing that, that Paul was trying to do. I mean, uh, why did Paul die as a martyr if that was true? It's not your fault that people die and go to hell. If guilt is the motivation for you going out to win souls, then your motivation is all wrong. What's a better motivation for winning souls? The best motivation that you have is because this is what God commands me to do. This is the will of God. This is the performance of God's will. And when you're, when you're doing God's will and you know that you're obedient, that's what brings your happiness. When you lay guilt trips on people about soul winning, they're never going to be successful and they won't be happy while they do it. They'll feel guilty all the time. But if a person has the right motivation, his motivation is because God commands it. It's God's will that I do it. And the performance of God's will always makes a Christian happy. And so this is why Paul could be content in prison reaching the people he did in that way because that is the performance of God's will. And so for Paul, whether it's life or whether it's death, doesn't matter to him. There's not one more soul or one less soul that would have been saved depending on whether Paul is in prison or whether Paul dies as a martyr. If salvation is dependent upon those things, then no witnessing Christian would ever die. God wouldn't let them die. Because that would be the only way he could get people saved. But you see, God's in control of all that, and we put our dependence upon him, and his will will, will, will work as, he, as we obey that will. 
Now, many preachers, folks, are afraid to stand up in their pulpits and say exactly what I said to you tonight. Even though many of them will admit that this is true, they don't want to say it. Because they say, you know, if I preach sermons like that, then it would destroy my church. People would stop working. It would shut down the entire ministry of the work, if we were to uh, work of the ministry, if we were to preach like that. Well, if that ever shut down a person's ministry, it, they've taught the people wrongly. They've given people the wrong motivation. And when that motivation is the energy of the flesh, it won't accomplish what's done in the energy of the Spirit. Now, the last part of verse number 19 nails down Paul's confidence in self-deliverance and soul deliverance. It says here, the supply of the Spirit of Jesus. And what he means there is the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is not sufficient to accomplish God's work in God's way, what is sufficient? Who is sufficient? Absolutely. God is the one who's in control of all of it. So I wonder sometimes what preachers are thinking. Is it God who's in control or is man in control? We obey God and his will is done. Now let's notice a second thought, and we'll take this from verse number 20. There's the deliverance that Paul expected, and number two, the disappointment that Paul avoided. Verse number 20. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always... So now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Now notice that phrase there, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. What does Paul mean by ashamed? Well, if we take that word and we apply it as we use it today, we come up with the meaning that Paul knew that he would be vindicated. I mean, whenever he was wrongly accused, he would be vindicated. You know, most people would say, well, there's Paul, there's that old preacher, he's in a, he's in a prison over there, so he must be a, a hardened criminal. There has to be something wrong with him or he wouldn't be in prison. You know, the Jews were always accusing him of sedition. Uh, they, they, they tried to, to have him killed because they said Paul is trying to stir up trouble against the government. When Paul appeared before Felix, the Jews hired a, a, a New York lawyer an orator to come in there and to try and convince Felix that Paul was really a seditionist. And they hoped that by his great oratory and his eloquence in his speech that he would be able to, he would be able to convince Felix of what a terrible uh, person that Paul was. But they were messing with the wrong guy because Paul was a very intelligent person. And he was able to refute all of those arguments. And, of course, the outcome of that was that he appealed to Caesar. So all of them were false accusations. And whether Paul believed or whether anyone believed what was said about Paul or not, Paul prayed that he would not bend beneath the weight of all of that and would be afraid to preach in boldness. So if we come to the conclusion that's what he means by ashamed, then absolutely there is truth in that, that Paul wasn't ashamed. But there's another explanation for this. What does he mean by ashamed? James Montgomery Boyce points out here that the meaning of this word ashamed has changed from Paul's time until now. And the original word meant disappointment. And I think in the context of the chapter, that really makes the most sense. That no matter what happened to Paul, no matter how bad things got in prison, he would never be disappointed in Christ. There's nothing that's going to happen to him that, that would change his mind that knowing Christ was more important than his own life. That whatever happened to him is okay. And we learn that in verse number 21. And we'll talk about that some in the next lesson. Well, if that's the meaning, then what disappointment did Paul avoid? Well, the first thing he avoided was the failure of salvation. 
There are several verses of Scripture that use the word ashamed. Romans chapter 5, verse number 5 is one of those. And Paul writes there, Hope maketh not ashamed. And it's interesting that almost all of the old writers agree that that should be interpreted, hope make or hope does not disappoint. Our hope in Christ will be realized. We're not going to be disappointed because the hope that we have in Christ is a sure hope. Then there's another verse of Scripture that everybody's familiar with. I alluded to it earlier that uses the word ashamed. Romans chapter 1, verse number 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Almost every time that you hear that verse preached, you'll hear people say, Well, Paul was not afraid to stand up for the gospel of Christ. He, he wasn't ashamed of preaching the gospel. He didn't care who made fun of him. He didn't care who, who liked it or didn't like it. He was never ashamed of it. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that interpretation because it's true. But what if we applied that old-time meaning of, of, of ashamed? He would say then, For I am not disappointed in the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation. So what does that mean? Well, it means that the gospel never fails in its appointed end. Paul could never be disappointed that the gospel that he preached would not save souls. There is no disappointment in this. God never fails. His salvation never fails. God's power never fails. Well, if we take that meaning and we relate it to verse number 6, where Paul says, he who starts the good work in you is going to finish that work, then the word ashamed there, meaning disappointed, really fits in well with the chapter. Salvation will never fail, and so Paul can never be disappointed as he preaches the gospel, even though preaching the gospel made him a prisoner. He's not going to be disappointed in that gospel. The second thing we would note here, another disappointment that he avoids, is the failure of the Savior. In 1 Corinthians 15, we've been studying on Sunday morning, uh, Paul gives the Bible's most extensive treatment of the resurrection of Christ. And he explains the absolute necessity of the resurrection. He gave all the proof that's needed. We've been talking about that. And he, he told us the resurrection is real and all the proofs are there. Well, the purpose of that is to tie it to our resurrection. The whole purpose of 1 Corinthians 15 is to prove that because Christ came out of the grave in a body, that we will also come out of the grave in our bodies. When's that going to happen? Well, it happens at the second coming. Paul explains that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul didn't know when Christ was coming back, but he did know that it it would happen. And because of Christ's resurrection, he knew that he would be also raised. So he's never going to be disappointed in the Savior. He's not going to be disappointed that the Savior is able to raise him up even if he were to die in that prison. If he didn't have that sure hope, then the book of Philippians would not have been written. All of this ties into the confidence that he has in God. And that's why I told you, Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. And if you don't get Philippians 1 6 under your belt, you'll never understand how Paul could go through all of this and come out without distress. How is it possible? So Paul found peace and contentment even in the prison. So now, if that's where he places all of his confidence and hope, if the Savior can do all this for him, he's not going to be disappointed, then he says, the Christ, Christ will be magnified in my life then. He says, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. 
Now let me point out to you two ways that Christ was magnified in Paul's life and he should be magnified in your life. Number one is that he should be glorified or magnified inwardly. And that's because our bodies are the temple of Jesus Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, right now, folks, I'm talking about the holiness of your life. I've been told that I don't preach enough about holiness, and I partly believe that. I, uh, as you know, I concentrate on doctrines many times that Baptists have forgotten about and that many didn't even know about. And what I've tried to do in Brian Baptist Church is restore some of the things that our Baptist forefathers have taught all down through the centuries. Well, when Baptist people fail to preach those things, what kinds of things are they preaching? Well, one of the things they preach about is holiness. They do a lot of preaching about personal holiness. There's nothing wrong with that. We ought to preach about it, I think. But we ought to also understand where the foundation of holiness lies. It lies in those very doctrines of God's decrees. That's where our holiness is going to come from. Now, they'll preach all the time, and they'll say it. Sanctification is God's work but then they act like it's man's work. Now, so that's why I, I don't use the same approach that they use. What they do many times is they produce very judgmental Christians, highly judgmental Christians. And they'll think that if you don't do everything exactly as they do, if you don't fit into their mold exactly like they are, then you are a worthless Christian if you're a Christian at all. Well... What happens then is you get a core group in the church that's conformed to the principles, conformed to that certain type of Christianity, that becomes the inner circle, and nobody else breaks into that inner circle unless they conform to all of the rules. So I tried to avoid that approach. I mean, I really don't want to do that. And so what happens is I may not preach about personal holiness enough, but I want to tell you something. Personal holiness is a doctrine of God's Word. And I'm also going to tell you that some of you are too lax on this issue. Some of you dress wrongly. Now, that's not the only thing that goes in with holiness, but I'll just talk about it a minute. Some of you dress wrongly. Some of the ladies come to church and you look like you've been poured into a pair of jeans. And thankfully, this doesn't happen too much in church services, but I'll come over here to church and there may be some, some of the ladies that are running around with barely enough clothes to cover your rear end. And you got tops on that are better suited for the bedroom than they are for the church of Jesus Christ. You're too lax about it. And what we're doing is we're conforming to the culture that's around us so that there's no difference between us and them. Now, I've been trying to preach that those things get corrected when you have a right doctrinal approach and holiness will be the result of correct doctrine. Well, the problem is some of you must not be paying too much attention because the outcome is not what we're preaching here. I mean, the truth of the Scripture is going to reveal these things to us and cause us to have that personal holiness. We'll start to be living proof of the thing that's in our heart. So what happens when it doesn't show on the outside? Well, it means that you're filling your minds up with something else. There's junk that's taking over the place of the Word of God. Things, other things in your life besides the truth of the Scripture. So the inward holiness, it needs to be there. And if you're listening to the Word of God and paying attention to what's being taught, the inward holiness will be produced. But you know what's going to happen? It will show itself outwardly. And that's the second way that Christ was magnified in Paul's life. He was magnified outwardly through Paul's Christian testimony. So if, if, if Christ is being magnified inwardly, it's going to show outwardly. Now, I'm not just talking about the way that you dress. 
Maybe I need to remind you of that. Hopefully those things will get straightened out. You just need to be reminded of it some. But I also mean not just stress. I mean in a Christian attitude. I mean in the love and the compassion that you have for other people. Your spirit will change towards others when you have the holiness that God requires. It changes towards Christians, and that means that you don't become that high-maintenance Christian. I mean, the one that's got to always have their way, and the one that's always thinking about serving self instead of serving others. And when we get into chapter 2, we're going to see the greatest example of servitude in the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 is a very important chapter. But it also changes not just towards Christians, but it changes towards non-Christians. And what I mean here is that the outward testimony shines through so that people can see Christ in you, and they'll see there's something different about the way that you live your life. So Christ is manifested outwardly through a Christian testimony. All of you are familiar with the Scripture, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be ye, be ye not transformed to this world, but be, ye, may, be not conformed to this world, rather, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. That's the heart of someone who's magnifying Christ. So it starts inwardly, and it will display itself outwardly. Now, here's the thing that we need to determine, is when are we going to start seeing some of this stuff outwardly? When is that going to happen? And so we need to be thinking a little bit more about that. And maybe I do need to remind you sometimes that your holiness ought to show on the outside of your life as well as you saying that I've got it on the inside. Now, let me close with this thought tonight. Surrender your eyes, your ears, your tongue, and your heart to Jesus. Now, if you'll do that, and take that last one first, surrender your heart, you know what will happen? When your heart is surrendered to him, you will be careful about what you see. You'll be careful about what you hear. You'll be careful about what you say. You'll be careful about the way that you dress. And you won't be ashamed of Jesus. One thing is for sure, Christ has never disappointed us. So we better get busy trying not to disappoint him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that you've given us tonight. Help us to understand this better, what you expect of us as your people. Lord, the holiness should be there. And we thank you, Lord, that you do work in our lives through your word. Just help us to pay more attention to that word. Lord, may we also be as Paul that... Outward circumstances do not control our happiness, but all of our hope is stayed upon you. Bless our people, even those, Lord, that are going through tough times right now, difficult things that they face, to know, Lord, there is a day of deliverance coming. This life is short, and we have all eternity to spend with you. Bless our people tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.